and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Rick Roberts. Rick was the lead singer of the bands Firefall and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Rick, very talented singer-songwriter. You know, their Haiti was back in the 70s, so you can imagine the stories that Rick shares. He's also written a couple books, the last one being Lane Brain, that focuses on his very serious injury that he sustained a couple years ago. He's recovered, he shares the story. Rick, very great storyteller, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So Rick, um, you're an accomplished author as well as a uh, you know, multi-million dollar or album-selling artist, but Song Stories, your first book, I really enjoyed. Um, I've, I'll read Lame Brain real soon, and I apologize for not reading it before this, but uh, so, but, but Song Stories gave, gives a little breakdown of the amazing songs that you've written in your career, the little stories. Um, what was like the whole like premise behind like writing first this book and then Lame Brain? Well, actually, what happened was um, I had, uh, this is described in Limbrain, but in 2006, uh, I took a fall. I got a feet, take a look at the fur rug, and stumbled uh, and hit my head against the corner of our kitchen island and suffered a brain injury, a, a subdural hematoma. And uh, so I lost my ability to walk for about four years and had other uh I can walk it now, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, among the other pieces of damage, you know, physical damage was I hit the left side of the forehead, which, as you probably know, right. your left side of the brain controls the right side of your body and vice versa. So, therefore, my, my cording hand was fine. My strumming hand was just beyond <laughs> redemption. I mean, I still could only play about half the songs that I could play that I've written, you know. Uh, and... The other, the, the rhythmic structure is too complicated for my arm to follow. Yeah, you know, I say, okay, do this. My arm says, you talk to me, sucker. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of an adversarial relationship. So, nonetheless, uh, for the first couple of years, uh, I could not really play at all. And I needed some kind of a, an outlet. And people have been telling me for years, you need to write your memoir. You need to write that. And I was going, dad, and I was oh, but you got all these great stories. And I said, yeah, but a lot of musicians have great stories. And, you know, whatever. And one night a guy heard me having that conversation. He told me over years of critic for the Denver Post. And he said, Rick, he said, you're right. There are a lot of musicians who have a lot of great stories. But you have something to offer that don't. You have had your injury. You've come back from that. And you also came back from alcoholism and uh, all this. So you have a story that might be a benefit to some people. And at that point, I felt this cloud of responsibility descending upon my head. I thought, well, baby. So when I was found, when I was in a situation where I could not play, uh, I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I'll go ahead and do that. So I, I wrote uh, my entire autobiography, and when I submitted it to a woman, a, a, a critic, who been, or excuse me, a, a literary agent who'd been waiting for it for a year, uh, she she got back in touch with Rick. Uh, I, your, your memoir is 200,000 words, and this must be about 100,000 words, so I can't read it because I'll never be able to sell it. <laughs> so I went, okay. So I called my, my publisher, uh, editor at the time, and, uh, and said, uh, look, what can we do to cut this down? And doing the writing of the book, uh, 
when I would tell people what I was doing, they'd say, oh, yeah, you're going to write about your music, right? And I would tell them, sure. But when I got to the point in time where I was doing my, my music and all, uh, I was searching for a way to work it into the narrative, and it was kind of difficult to find something that I liked. So instead, I, I decided to write a lyric to an individual song and then a relevant story. And before I knew it, I had about 40, 42 songs, something like that. And when I tried to put them into the narrative, they just chopped up the flow of it entirely. So instead, I made them part five of the book. I had a glorified appendix and called it Song Stories. So in talking about my uh, editor then, I said, okay, so let's see, what can we cut? We'll, we'll cut Song Stories. I should, oh, no, no, your fans are going to want to read that. First of all, you know, no, you can't cut that out. So we went on talking, and about 15 minutes later, she says, wait, we are going to cut song stories, but we're not going to dump it. We're going to make it a book of its own. So I filled out, I, I, I added about four, about 10 more songs, say, and, and stories, and uh, put in a few chapters of anecdotes, road stories, so the hot stuff, which you're aware of, and that's what came out as Stories. So with Lame Brain, in fact, uh, my editor called me back. By this time, she has never shown her publishing house, so now I'm not publisher, and said, okay, can you uh, fill out the portion of the book that's about your injury and recovery? Uh, because I think that would be a really, really good thing. So I, I did. I fleshed it out a bit, and uh, that became Lame Brain. And in fact, uh, just to put the chair on, on top of the Sunday, um, my editor called me back about a year ago and said, look, there's too much good stuff for the rest of your memoir to just leave it alone. So we're going to make that a comfortable book. Can you rewrite the years that, that are involved in what's now land rent? And I said, yes. I wrote from a whole different angle on my life and stuff like that. And then and did that and so now that one which is going to be called and it'll be all right subtitled so the rest of the story <laughs> uh which will be out i think for the next two or three months and as i said it's going to be a cost book with a bunch of pictures and glossy stuff and all that stuff but nonetheless that is in fact a long way to, to tell you how song stories get out. right <laughs> now with, with song stories now all the the songs you had in there, the lyrics and the little background. Did all those songs? Did you record all those songs? Are they all released? Or? Well, uh, I would say it'd be, there are I think fifty-four songs that were there, right. and uh, about forty of them, or forty-two, something like that, are recorded and released. The others, uh, are, there, there are a few more of them that are on uh, iTunes. Okay. But they, I, I put out three uh, EP links, uh, four song collections about two or three years ago, or you know, over the course of a couple of years. But uh, there are a few more songs that are in there. Uh, but there are a couple that are not anywhere, except, you know, on, I mean, I have them on, on a disc or on tape or whatever, but they don't been released anywhere. And isn't like amazing how the business is now where you can just do that? You can just release a couple songs, you know, as you go, you don't have to worry about putting a whole full album together. Yeah, it is amazing. I'll tell you, in the it's now about fifty years I've been doing this. I turned seventy in August, so. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, 
the whole business is just an entirely different animal. I mean, they just uh, one of the best ways of, of putting it very succinctly. Uh, one of my publishers, uh, the guy that was running Stevensville's music, which has "You Are the Woman" and just remember a bunch of the best on stuff. Anyway, he's now he's a music publisher and he's a, a full professor of music at the University of North Carolina. But uh, he said, "Rick, look, it used to be that." musicians went out and they toured so they could sell their records. Right. Now, they give away the records so they can go out and play live. Because the money, in other words, is the, the income available for music has shifted 180 degrees from, from the record part, from recording and all that, to live performance. And uh, it just because, obviously, of iTunes and, and YouTube and all that stuff, right. uh, and uh, there's really very little money to be made in recording. I mean, uh, yeah, sure, you can, and certain people still sell so many bajillions of records. Yeah. <laughs> I hear about artists that have made their bit out for like three or four years, they got two or three albums out, and they basically had 70 or 80 million albums. Yeah. I go, really? Because yeah. I think in my career, I, my my sales are still combined under 10 million, you know, so we've got for all the records. Right. And there's like, I've got like four gold and two platinum, I think, but, you know, it's amazing. So there are those who rise above all of it, you yeah. And it's, by the way, just a little side note, it's the same thing with with uh, books. Again, when I first started to write, uh, I talked to a friend of mine who is a, a best-selling author. She's won a number of awards. Uh, and uh, she, we were talking one day, and she said, Rick, you don't, uh, you're not expecting to make the kind of money you made from music on this, are you? And I said, well, not exactly. I wasn't really thinking those terms much. Anyway, but what do you, while you ask, you said, well, it just doesn't work like that. She said, sure, James Patterson, Tom Crampy, Stephen King, they're, they're, you know, they're doing fine. But uh, for most of us, uh, you're just writing. You know, you better go out and be doing some, some lecturing and things behind your books and, and that sort of thing. Because just the, the royalties from your books are not going to sort you. Right. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's good to know. But anyway, it has entirely changed. And, and for me, I, I, I took some time off in 1993, actually, I got married. And I was pretty burned out from, from 20, plus years of almost non-stop recording or touring or whatever. And uh, the two things together told me, okay, I'd take a break, you know. And uh, so I, I kind of, I, didn't say, I wouldn't say I retired, but I hibernated. And uh, then I had my injury, which, which you know, kind of, uh, just about the time I was getting kind of restless and ready to go, go do it again. Nonetheless, about 2009, I had these unreleased songs, and I thought, well, why did I put these out now on the iTunes and all that and everything? And uh, I, I had to do a crash course and, and realized that I knew, after all the years I put into it, I knew nothing about the music industry as it stands right now. Right. Just such a different thing. So, you know, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm giving myself a, a real slap across the face here, mentally, so to speak, uh, about my 
outlook on current music, you know, because it, it got very easy to just say, oh, this stuff is ridiculous, because when I was at the height of my my uh, my involvement with all of it, uh, there were certain unwritten rules about, for instance, songwriting. Your song had to have more than one line of lyric and more than two chords, or at least more than one chord. Yeah, and like that. And and you usually needed to to have those chords played yeah, rather than just a beat and a few dancers. And the thing is, there is still good music out there. It's just a little harder to find because right. of the sheer volume of all that's out there. Yeah, you're just... It's like, if you don't know what you're looking for, you just go, you know, I remember when I was in college, you could go down to the, the, the uh, student union, to the, the student store where there were records, and you could you could look through and find a band with a, a, an interesting name right. and an interesting cover, and it was worth the adventure. You could take a chance, and, and you were likely to come up with something good because the record labels themselves for all the, the, the downside being all the really talented artists that, that did not get a break or, or just had bad luck about it and, and never saw the inside of a studio or whatever, the, the record was still did serve as a sort of filter on what was going to be out there. Now, with the advent of Pro Tools and all its successors, anyone and everyone can make a record. You know, even those who should not be singing air with their shower and, and, and do, you know, they're definitely not giving up their day job. So, so basically, like I said, it's the volume. If you don't know what you're looking for now, you're you can spend an infinite amount of time searching and, and not luck out, or you could get lucky and hit something right off the bat. But, and, and it's hard to know on like on TV. I remember when in the 70s, 80s, uh, Saturday Night Live, you had really, really good artists, some of whom you heard of and some of whom you hadn't. But you you could go there or to some of the late night shows for some really good new acts and stuff. Now what you see on there is very seldom something to wow. I want to hear more of that. You know, most of it's just like oh please. You know, what's happening? <laughs> but but I have been really you know disciplining myself to take a little closer look and not be my parents like. Beatles, why that's your noise? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's easy to go into that direction, but yeah. Right now, now speaking of like your parents and stuff, were they supportive of you? You know, like taking a career in music. Uh, you know, my father when I announced I was dropping out of college, when I went to college, they told me I had a gift of gab, command of language, and vivid imagination, and would make a great trial lawyer, a uh, criminal lawyer. And my entire awareness of law and all that was from Perry Mason. So I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. I want to be an investigative criminal lawyer. And then I got to college level and started prepping for it and, and found out that 95 and more percent of, of legal work is paperwork, which I detested. So I dropped out of college. What I did by and, and proceeded to inform my parents that I was going to pursue a, a career in music. My father told me I was a fool and a dreamer. And 
My mother, on the other hand, had been a childhood star on radio in Detroit back in the in the thirties early well, the forties actually, early forties, late thirties, um, and. Uh, you know, and she was supportive of being totally supportive from the get go. And in fact, it was I was lucky enough to allow her the luxury of, of living vicariously through through my success. Because with her, you know, I mean, her last uh, go round with music, uh, Tommy Dorsey band. I think I think it was Doris Day who had the dinner singer on that, but I'm not certain about that. Nonetheless, some singers that they had went off to pursue an acting career, and they held um, a nationwide talent contest for a new singer. And my mom won the state of Florida and was looking like a, a hot ticket, like maybe going to be the one, you know. And then they found out that she had lied about her age and mm-hmm. was only about 18 years old. And in those days, the big bands were playing in adult uh, friendly places. They played in dinner theaters, things like that, where they told liquor. And so they, they told my mom, I'm sorry, you, you're doing great, but we have to kick you out. You can't do it. So, you know, so she did not get to realize her dream. And she was able to, like I said, have some vicarious fun with my my success. So it was, was I, in fact, with my dad, I never even knew whether or not he was proud of me until, oh, I would say, you know, somewhere in the, the late 80s, early 90s, something like that, when I would hold a visit. And one of my dad's friends came to me and said, Rick, you, you got to, have you ever thought of doing something else? I said, what do you mean? Do some other career. I said, well, why would I want to do this? Because we are so sick of your father bragging about you all the time. It's just <laughs> driving us crazy. I went, really? <laughs> you know, that was hard for me to believe because I always figured he was thinking I was some bomb freeloader. <laughs> He, uh, in fact, he asked me one time when I first when I joined the Flying Breeder Brothers when I was just 21, 22, 21, and uh, I called him and I was describing some of the things going on with the band and everything like that, and he suddenly said, Nick, wait, wait a second, uh, he, you know, I said, he said, how old are these guys? And I said, what? He said, the rest of the band, how old are they? I said, well, let's see, Chris and is 25, or he's about 25, uh, Sneaky's 35, he said, they're grown men. And I said, yeah. He said, and they're still playing music. He he still had it in his mind. It was like a, a adolescent fantasy thing we would do for a few years and go find a real job. <laughs> so there you have it. Right, yeah. And one of the stories you had in Songstories where him and your grandfather saw you perform live. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, that, that was an interesting night because it was... I, got to play in Tampa, Florida, which is very close to Clearwater, where I grew up, and um, it was the first time, in fact, I had no idea until we were on stage, and uh, I could not really make out much around the lighting and all this stuff, but I could see at the back of, of the entire auditorium, when the doors opened from behind and the light came in, I could see there were two adult men standing back there, and they were cowboys who had cowboy hats on and like that and, and they were you know shown in profile against the back of the light you know and uh so then 
I noticed the audience something was just separated, parting like the Red Sea. I think we put it in book. And these two men are coming up the other, right up the middle, you know, and and the audience was making way for them. And they got up close. It was my father and my grandfather. And, <laughs> and my grandfather, who went through the whole thing with my mom, and also with my grandmom, his wife had been a vaudeville comedian. So he'd been around showbiz all his adult life and he's up there and he had told me in fact I, I said well do you ever want to come see birds nah I don't really think I'm very interested in that so well okay so here he was and as I'm sitting there singing he's sitting there and he's, he's rubbing his chin with one hand you know and there's like around his, the, the side of his chin and he's got his eyes kind of squinted a thoughtful look on his face and it like hmm well maybe this is bad you know and my dad is there like this <laughs> and uh i don't know I, I think i told the whole story in the book i'm not can't remember right now uh but that is the night uh, on the last beat of the last song of the last show of our tour i was playing cowbell and i Snapped the cowbell, snapped the drumstick right into my eye, sharp edge, and cut my eye and started bleeding profusely immediately. So they, they took me back and threw me on, on a table, and my grandfather and my father came back and, and they were looking at me, and yeah, it was nothing serious, but your eye does bleed a lot, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that was my grand finale to their wonderful experience seeing me play. Right, yeah. <laughs> Now, you mentioned, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers, which probably top five, you know, greatest rock band names ever. Um, you, you had a difficult, you know, position replacing Graham Parsons, didn't you? Very difficult. It was, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's really weird because after I left Firefall, the band broke up at that point. Right. But then Atlantic Records called Jeff Bartley back about six months later and said, look, we know Rick doesn't want to do this anymore, but... Uh, you know, there's a lot of money to do that there with a name. Would you like to take it on? So Jock said, yeah. And he has been going with it ever since. He now has Mark Andes and Dave Muse from the original band back playing with him. Uh, and so it's a little more. But, but they went through like 25 guys or so during the 80s. And uh, so I watch guys having to take my place. And so I, gee, that's no fun, is it? You know, because they're all nice, all nice guys. I mean, I'm friends with all the guys. But uh, uh, so it was a session of when I replaced Graham in Fritos. And uh, there were, I mean, there were like two schools of thought about it. There were those who would, wow, this is really better. This is really a different thing, you know. But then the, the larger portion were like, that band lost its soul when Graham Parsons was like, they got this pop guy, you know, he's a pop rocker, you know, wow, he's not country. And they were right about that because I knew nothing about country when I joined the band. Right. I had never been a fan of country music much. And, uh, you know, like that. But to this day, I mean, I, I still see, I've invited all these events, these over memorial services for Graham and, you know, annual celebrations of his stuff. And Graham was a, a very talented man, very interesting man as well. But I, I had been told by Hillman that uh, the band was never anywhere near as good with Graham as it was during the last two albums when, when it was with me. We, we worked harder. Graham was a cult figure even then. Even when he was live, he was a cult figure. And, uh, and, I mean, it was the 70s, and we all 
it, it was a, all the stuff you ever hear about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Pretty much true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the thing is, so so what I'm saying is, Graham's drug problem and things were certainly not his alone. I personally can attest to having had my my go around with drugs and alcohol and stuff big time. Not not heroin, but I was a cocaine maniac. And in fact, I'm one of the only guys that you'll ever talk to who turned a profit on cocaine without dealing it, because what I Coke, all I want to do is write. I play with my guitar and write. And I most most of my hit songs are written wired to the gills. But <laughs> so it goes. Right. So you, that's you, just. It, it, okay. I was going to say, so you actually you remember those days actually writing, even though you were high on cocaine? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the all the songs that you were the woman just in fact just remember I love you I told the story I think in uh, in the book and in, in song stories about the fact that um, after Firefall made his first album I I fell in love with a young lady down there I brought her back to Colorado and uh, when I would do my writing I would you know, get my cocaine I'd, I'd usually I'd, I'd do like three four day binges where I'd sleep a couple hours a night but generally up all night and then writing and all that stuff so about the fourth day of one of these binges uh debbie was her name debbie was heading up to bed and she goes listen you come with those mirrors you gotta sit down there with your tar and your cocaine that get all night and i cannot duplicate the venom in her voice when she <laughs> said it and i knew that was in a very precarious position so i really just remember i love you Sort of finish in the time between when she left upstairs and when she came downstairs in the morning. And because I knew that if I had a good idea and got a verse or something, that was going to cut it. So when she came back down the following morning, I played the song. And I, I'm talking the finished thing. I mean, I didn't change it from then until now. Yeah. Um, and, and I played it for her. She went, That's pretty good. When it all goes crazy and the thrill is gone. Days get rainy and the nights get long When you get that feeling you were born to lose Staring at your ceiling, thinking of your blues When there's so much trouble that you want to cry The world has crumbled and you don't know why When your hopes are fading and they can't be found
the blues come calling at the break of dawn. Rain keeps falling, but the rainbow's gone. When you feel like crying, but the tears won't come. When your dreams are dying, when you're on the run. Just remember, I love you, and it'll be alright. Just remember, I love you. Just remember I love you and it'll be alright It'll be alright It'll be alright <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I offended off certain death, <laughs> you know, at that point. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I wrote all my stuff, you know, coked up. But uh, and when I stopped writing behind cocaine, I stopped doing cocaine. So you know, there was no longer any purpose for it for me. But uh, anyway, the, but we were talking about Graham, and the thing is, Graham, Graham carried his his drugs as alcohol into his performance, and he would go up on stage and he'd be. I mean, three sheets of the wind, and he'd go up there, and they'd have their set made up, and he'd just veer off on some old country song they didn't, that he just had thought of, and then remembered it loud, and some players, the band wouldn't have it on set, they wouldn't know it in most cases, so they'd be trying to follow him and all this stuff, and it was very difficult for all of them. And uh, they've, all those guys have told me similar stories about this. Finally, one night, uh, the party came when uh, they went on. Graham did just that. and went through the whole set. He's just winging it. And the band is trying to keep him up and walks off back to this room, high as a kite, and turns around to Hillman and says, Well, that was pretty good, huh? And Chris just saw red and didn't want to smash Graham in the face. But Chris is a, was, was a hitter. So he hit his guitar and he, he totaled, hit the, he hit the box and just just smashed it and they told Graham he was finished and Graham said you can't fire me and Chris said oh yes I can and that was the end of it and uh, so you know so uh, but as I said Graham was a cult figure and when he died even more so and uh, there are those people who think that he still is the greatest thing to ever come to music much like James Dean people like that and you know I, I don't know who it was who said this but someone remarked on the fact that Graham did not live long enough to ever make a really terrible album or things like that. So, and, and now it's a matter of his accessibility, i.e. being dead, he's not accessible, and that, that lends to the cult status. So that's been a, you know, a thing. You know, there are those who, who uh, you know, because I have access to all those those Graham uh, pages and stuff like that, uh, and like that, I, I go on, I, I check it out, and 
in the Brito Brothers page, there are those people from that who do not even acknowledge that the Britos existed after their second album when wow. my grand left. Uh, you know, that anything after that is no longer the Flying Brito Brothers. And, you know, <laughs> so whatever. But there are those who, who say the third album is their favorite of all. But, and for myself, I'll tell you, I love the material from the first album. That was a wonderful uh, piece of, of, of music stuff. But uh, the production of it was kind of shaky. And then Chris Hill backstreet for this totally. But, you know, I, I was incredibly fortunate and blessed to, to be able to break in with that band because instead of, I mean, the education alone, being able to come in, instead of coming in with some other guys that just came off the street like you did, uh, to come in with a bunch of guys that you'd grown up listening to music or, or who had at the very least had been around the block several times and had learned a lot of the, the rudimentary lessons of, of being in the music business and like that. I could just shut up and watch them, you know, which I tried to shut up as much as possible. It's not mm-hmm. easy for me. <laughs> but I did did have the sense to, to pay attention and learn a lot from those guys. They would have taken a lot longer to learn otherwise. Right. Now, how, how so, yeah, how is your writing different from, like, writing solely compared to the, the brothers compared to Firefly? Was it different at all? I'll tell you, it's funny because between the Breeders and Firefall, I did two solo albums. Right. And in, on the first solo album, a lot of the Breeders remained in my writing. Uh, and in fact, some of songs were written during the Breeders' days, but just hadn't had a chance to be recorded there. But uh, as I got into Firefall, I was still early enough in my writing career, if you will, um, that that I was flexible. I was subject to change, you know, and and my my writing became more oriented to the group of musicians I was working with, which were much more rock and roll oriented than the Burritos had been. I was also writing, attempting at least to write for the Burritos when I was there. And it, although I wasn't attempting to write straight out country or something, nor was I attempting to write straight out rock and roll with Firefall. It was just an influence, if you will, uh, shading to my music. So there was a change, yeah. And, and you can see it in the two solo albums, a little... That was kind of as I was going towards where my own sensibilities were taking me. But, yeah, it's a kind of a, a weird uh, extension of the, the idea that two heads are better than one or five heads are better than one. In other words, the, the, the people you're playing with and, and how they sound, everything, does shade what you write. You know, you go, oh, 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 and boy, oh, Dave's on this one. Yeah, there was a great story in the book. You tell, you know, obviously great stories touring w- about David Muse, who he had to go into the woods to, you know, believe himself uh, yes. with the with the wild boar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you know Do you know what David's response to me about the whole thing was after he read the book? He said it was a pink toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> 
I remember being pink, David. Now, it's regular toilet paper. David, it was still toilet paper. You were still waving it to try to fend off a wild boar. So, let's not split hairs. Anyway, but yeah, yeah, that, I mean, there were so many things. I, I, I don't have nearly all the toys in that book. <laughs> I'm sure. There are just, there, there are so many things. That That is one of the things I'm most grateful for about all these years of music is that, you know, I mean, Music is, you know, okay, first of all, there was a movie of a long time ago, starred Alan Ladd, called Shane. Right. And right towards the end of the movie, he's uh, saved the widow and her son, and the son idolizes him, and, and he sadly got to leave. And the kid says, where are you going, going? Oh, you guys say you got to teach me that little cowboy, too. And Alan Ladd turns around to him and says, son. It reads that as it is, and and the same thing could be said about music. In not so much that it doesn't, it isn't as good as it as it seems. The thing is, there's a lot more to it than what people see. You know, they see you on stage and go, "Wow, that's a great, what what a fame!" What? But they don't see the other twenty two and a half hours of the day when you're on tour, where you get short sleep, move every day. Some good hotels, some not so good. The food is always lacking, you know, and, and all the other stuff, you know, that, that makes it different. You know. And the thing is, or that makes it different than what you see on stage. Uh, and the thing is, every profession has its highs and lows and has its interesting stories and all that stuff. But I will say that music does provide a fertile background for some of the most outrageous things that happen <laughs> ever that you probably wouldn't see if you're working as a CPA. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I still, I, I hear stories about things like, okay, I was with Michael Clark in both Flying Brewers and Firefall. And Michael is a wonderful, wonderful man. Huge heart. Uh, no moral compass whatsoever. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think he, in some ways, he did not really understand the difference between right and wrong about certain things. I mean, not not uh, as certain political figures don't understand it right and wrong. But I mean, he just he would he would hug you in the afternoon, tell you he loves you, and then. Still used to ash that night, then love you again in the morning, yeah, and not, not think he'd done anything wrong. And you go, uh, Michael, what about that, uh, yeah, that rock of coke I had in my room that's no longer there? Oh, man, nothing, yeah. But anyway, but, but he generally, he was a, a wonderful man. But I, I, I heard, not more than like four or five years ago, I heard this story from some guys I was playing with that had played in a band with Michael. And Michael had adapted the habit. He always had his big can of Budweiser on stage with him. <laughs> but he started going up on stage and he would take two cans. One he would have up for his, his drinking during that. The other he would leave closed or unopened and he would put two or three or four lines of cocaine on the <laughs> on the top of the stage. And between songs he'd tip it up and go, <laughs> you know, People just think you take a sip of beer. Things like that, you know. I mean, it, it, most most professions you don't get to do stuff like right. that, yeah. So, whatever. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, they, there are outrageous things that happen. Yeah, they're definitely. So. Yeah, and there's a lot more in the book. Everyone read it. Um, now, with, with Firefall, um, obviously, you know, you're 
two main songs, you know, You Are the Woman and Just Remember I Love You. Um, I guess you can, you know, I guess you can be kind of a misnomer about the band being like a, the term now is yacht rock and then, you know, the West Coast music and soft rock, where most of your songs are far from that. Yeah, it's, well, you know, I'll tell you, um, about, oh, well, a long time ago, but uh, I was having a conversation with a Canadian friend of mine, and the friend, and I was talking about all the tremendous contributions from, from Canadian artists, Joe Mitchell, Neil Young, and we went on through the list, you know, and, and Gordon Lightfoot came up, and when his name came up, the guy said, oh, man, Gordon Lightfoot, he wrote five of the greatest songs ever to come out of a Canadian composer. He did five of the greatest over and over and over. And and that just it hit me, you know, as a songwriter. I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. I've heard it. So I, was, I tried to kind of vary my styles. But, and some of my, my most well-known stuff is soft rock. But some of my other stuff, like Mexico right. and, and So Long and Blue and Blue, they, they, they're so melodic and they're, they're songs and harmonies and things, but they're, they're not. They won't be confused with bread, you know, <laughs> yeah. with David Gates. In fact, that was an ongoing concern for the band. Uh, we don't want to be bread, man. You know, <laughs> we're like an old band. And in fact, uh, on the second when the second album came out, and it had the first two songs released as singles, were "So Long" and "Just Remember I Love You." And uh, both, you know, "So Long" did okay. Come and go Blame it on the weather Or something in the wind Blame it on whatever It might have been You can say you know what happened You can say So long, so long. 
Understanding with the lyrics, right? Uh, <laughs> a total false, false there. Right. Uh, and to elaborate on that, which I presume is what you're. Of course, at, yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing is, yeah, it it happened just the way I said it. Uh, we turned the record in, and the Lazan man from Atlantic Records to us called me years later. He said, "Rick, there's someone there, and we think it's a smash, but they're never going to play with those lyrics." And I said, "What's wrong?" He said, just remember, I love you. What lyric? He said, you know. I said, no, I don't. He said, yeah, yeah, you know. I said, I don't know. 
They said, okay, there's going to be coy about it. It's the lyric in the first verse where it says, and, and the real lyric, by the way, is staring at your semen, thinking <laughs> of your blues. And their ear guys, their, their listeners, had heard it, and what they heard was staring at your semen, thinking of your bruise. And after I stopped laughing, I said, no, no, no. It's just a reason. No, no, no explanations. Either you change the lyrics or the song does not go on the record. So I went to the band and I told them what happened. And after they finished laughing, we came up with this plan. And what we did was, a couple of weeks later, we sent the same tape back exactly, but with a lyric sheet. And Jim, uh, Jim Delahead, who was the guy, the laser guy, called me a couple weeks later. He said, Man, see, that wasn't so hard, was it? And I told him, Jim, it was easier than you could have measured. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the way it, it ended up almost not going to go hard. Yeah. So, what are your relationships with that song? And um, you're, the, you're the woman. You are the woman that I've always dreamed of. I knew it from the start. I saw your face and that's the last I've seen of my heart It's not so much the things you say to me It's not the things you do It's how I feel each time you're close to me That keeps me close to
lucky enough and smart enough to wait until most of the hubbub was behind me <laughs> to uh, to get married and, and actually try to give a full bore effort. You know, I had seen too many of my friends uh, try very hard to to do uh, marriages and and had very tough time with it because all the temptations out there were real. I mean, there were people telling you the best things since sliced bread, you were extraordinary and all this stuff, and, and pretty soon you're living in this closed little bubble, and it's very easy to believe it or to succumb to sort of the temptation. And, you know, I, I succumbed to plenty of temptation myself, but, but I had the sense to not be married when I was doing mm-hmm. it, you know. So, um, nonetheless, that, that song was written for no particular person, although there are a number of people who now claim they've written about them, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and with Just Remember, as I told you, that was written about the woman right. upstairs. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Now, like, looking back all these years, um, do you still appreciate those songs? Yeah, uh, I do. Uh, you know, I, I, when I'm listening back to myself, because I don't really do it all the time, right. but uh, I go, hey... Yeah. And I also go through the thing, which I talked to the composers, and they do the same thing. You, know, you, you look and you go, I wrote that? How did I know that? Where, where did I find that line? That's a, you know, and usually it's in a good way. Occasionally it's an ouch. Oh, what was I thinking? You know, in fact, there is the first song that Chris Hill and I ever co-wrote together is a song called Did You See? And uh, it has shown up over the years on some collections as about it was an outtake at the studio. But we, it is an embarrassingly bad song, I think. Chris thinks it's not very good, but but you know he doesn't think it's terrible. I think it's terrible. It, it has awful lyrics and all this stuff. And so those there are those wins moments. Those, those you know. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I did that. Yeah, I did that. But but you do look back at yourself and you go, you know, what? You know, what was I thinking when I did that? You know, what happened? Where was my head? You know, and uh, you know, and sometimes it's amazing. There are songs that I have that uh, that not until years later. Like I have a song called "Like an Angel," and in the song, there's a song. There's a, a in a world of black and white like roses in the rain and I liked it I liked the imagery of it everything. and I never had a clue as to why it, the line even occurred to me and then maybe 10 years ago I mean three decades after I wrote the song whatever um, I suddenly realized where that lyric came from and it was really an obscure situation because where it came from when I was a uh,
was raining cats and dogs. The whole sky was socked in, just total gray. And if you've ever spent any time in D.C. or even been there, you know that with all the buildings, the government buildings and everything, especially on a rainy day, the buildings are white and everything else, the, the roads are wet and the asphalt's black. It really looks like a world of black and white. So when we went to the White House and it was all raining and everything, we decided, nah, we're not going to do that. Don't stay in the rain for half an hour to get in and all this stuff. We'll just take a pass. And as we're driving away, we passed the Rose Garden. And the Rose Garden was in full bloom. All these scarlet red roses and everything like this. And there's where it came from. Crimson flashes in a world of black and white, like roses in the rain. And I suddenly realized, 30 years later, where I got that lyric. So that happens sometimes. And that's always a, a pleasant surprise. But there are other lyrics that I still don't know <laughs> why I them. And, and I'm not so sure I want to know. <laughs> right. so, yeah. So um, what was your exit from uh, Firefall like? Well, basically, uh, where I left, the band had done five albums. The last album, we kind of could have mailed in. Right. Uh, the, the band, Michael Clark and Mark Andes had left after the fourth album. Uh, actually, we, we kind of, we told Michael it was the right time for him to go so that we wouldn't fire him because, you know, it was not working out at that point. Uh, his, his alcohol and drugs had gotten kind of out of hand. But anyway, um, and those guys had left. Larry Burnett and I were two songwriters band, um, and both of us were in songwriters' thumps. On that record, I had three songs, which is the least I had on any Firefall album, uh, and he had one co-written song with Jock Barbary, and the rest was either from Jock or David Muse, uh, or outside the tour. But the first album that we ever used to be outside the tour. So all those things were coming together, and and the chemistry that the original band had. We replaced Mark and Michael with uh, George Hawkins and Tris Imboden from Kenny Loggins' band, who are tremendous players, better players than uh, Tris by far. Tris has been playing with, with Chicago for the last 25 years so, and just recently retired, but a tremendous drummer. And and George Hawkins, a great singer and uh, a very, very good bass player. Uh, so no question about the talent, but the chemistry of the band is a, a very ethereal kind of thing. And you can't really judge your own talent or anything. It just it, it happens or it doesn't. And, and the total, uh, basically the band was tired. And 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 it showed. So the time came for me to just say goodbye. Uh, and it was, you know, I mean, it was not hostile. It was just kind of like the band was disappointed, uh, and and as I said, broke up at that point. Uh, but uh, it, you know, we all now we're, we're all still good friends. Uh, as uh, I guess you know, Larry and I are now playing right. together again. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a good thing. He and I had our ups and downs. Uh, it turns out that, that when, when uh, he joined the band, what it was uh, to start with, I found him driving in a cab in Washington, D.C. I, I say I found him. Uh, a mutual friend told me about him and arranged for him to pick me up and take me where I was doing a gig there at the Cellar Door for three days back in about 1973, I guess. And, uh, you know, so so... 
uh, friend set it up, and there he picked me up, and we talked while he carried me around my errands, and then I told him, we'll come back for a guitar, come to the later on, you know, so he did, played me a few songs, one of them Cinderella, his best song, and I went, whoa! This guy, yeah. And I said, well, look, I'm thinking of putting a band together. And he said, well, yeah, tell me to get something going. Yeah, I'm, I'm available, but, you know, I'll, I'll hear about it when it's happening. Yeah, okay. so yeah right, okay. So about oh, a year later, uh, I started putting Firefall together, which at the time was Rick Robinson Firefall, because I was going to, I'd just been dropped by A&M Records, and I was going to be looking for a new uh, contract, and I, I, wanted to have a band because they had told me the first time around you really could use a band you know so i thought i'd have one so I, I got jock and then i got mark and uh we tried a few other guys i wanted a second songwriter uh, a second band singer we tried a few guys around boulder area and uh, they didn't work quite the way we wanted I, I said hey i met this guy last year in dc and here i got his cassette listen to these and they said get him out here so I called back to Larry in D.C. and they said, well, you know, uh, I, I, I'd like to do it. He said, but I may not be available for a few years. I've been convicted of seven felony drug convictions. Oh, so I'm wow. going for sentencing tomorrow. And if I walk out of courtroom, I'll be on the next plane, you know, because I bought a ticket and everything else. So he went to court, and uh, his lawyer said to the judge, Your Honor, my client has been offered gainful employment, uh, it, by a, a legitimate musician, he held my solo album and like this, and, and said, and uh, most of all, he'll be out of the area. Same suspended. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so, so there he got out of the plane and came out. But the thing is, for the next two or three years, I mean, it was, if I said it was daytime, he would say, no, it's night. If I said, well, that, that's a blue blue shield of this, no, it's a red shield, you know, whatever. Uh, it, whatever I said was wrong, we were at odds all the time. Right. You know? And he finally told me about 10, 15 years ago, he said, Rick, do you know why I was always uh, opposite of you about everything? I said, no, I never could figure that out. And he said, well, he said, you know, you guys, you and Mark and Michael had, had all been big, big, you know, I've big fans of all you guys, and here I was coming straight off the street, and I just wanted to make sure you know I, I had a mind of my own and deserved a seat at the big boy table, you know, so I said, wait, you you were just being contrary that whole time just so you could show that you had a mind of your own, and he said, well, yeah, but now that you say it that way, you know, but anyway, so that was, you know, there were, there were some, some things, but, uh, but we all, you know, we, we all realized that, that we were given a gift and, uh, and we all feel very lucky to have that happen to us. I bet there's, uh, there's, you know, there's still, there's, there's little tweaker things between certain members of the band, you know, that, that don't see one another or anything like that, but, but we all get along fine. I, whenever they're around, whenever the band is around, playing somewhere in Oakley, I go to see them, and uh, yeah, we hang out and have a good time, and I, I talk to him on the phone. Mark Andy's just recently had some medical difficulties. He had a, uh, let's just see, what was he, he had a collapsed lung, and, and he had two or three things that all happened at once, mm-hmm. and uh, he was in, in the hospital for a while, and, and uh, is, it had became highly anemic, lost like 30 pounds, and had to go off the road. They, they were replacing him with various other players for like two or three months. He's back out with them now. But I was 
here. Michael, or Mark, I mean, is in Texas. Uh, Larry is in Delaware. And, yeah, so, so we don't see one another on a regular basis, but uh, yeah, it's all good. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, with technology now, with, you know, FaceTime and Skype, it's all easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do, you, uh, do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? I do. <laughs> yeah, I may have done. I didn't tell this story, but uh, yeah, the, the first song I ever heard of mine on the radio was Colorado by the Brios. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and we were going over to the 
but Pinnacle Gardens in UCLA, which is one of the greatest places to trip in the world, because they have every climate of of forestation and everything uh, in the in the space of about four or five city blocks, and each each area is about the size of a, a good sized house. So you can go and you can be in the tropical rainforest, and you go over to the tundra. And they can go over to the, uh, you know, the forestation of, like you see in New England, and you you go out to the desert. You know, well, it's amazing. And so we're getting ready to leave anyway. We're just coming on to the end. <laughs> and I hear they were doing at that point on the radio. They did three song sets. So they start with Fire and Rain by James Taylor. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh yeah, wait, let's listen to it. So we just do it. And right after I hear da 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 da. Hold the keys. We gotta wait. That sounds just like my soul Colorado, and lo and behold, it was my soul Colorado. Mm-hmm. Only the album wasn't gonna be released for three weeks yet, and I didn't know anything about how they pre-release to radio stations right. and stuff. So I thought we had been bootlegged or something, you know, or, or some some weird thing. And I'm immediately on the phone. Hey man, yeah, somebody told us that and they had to calm me down and explain to me how it all worked. And I'm going, okay, yeah. Uh, and by the way, they, they they followed up my phone with uh, 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 Jody Mitchell's clouds. So okay. I thought, well, I'm in great company. <laughs> but that was the first time I ever heard what I saw on my radio. And it had quite an impact, yeah. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure. But uh, everyone read Lame Brain. I'm going to read that real soon. Song stories, and then you're. I can't wait to read the third one, you know, coming up real soon. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the difference you're going to find between um, song stories and lame brain is that song stories, I've, I've told people for several years now that I was hoping for that to take the place of Reader's Digest as your <laughs> favorite bathroom reading because it's all in segments where you can read five minutes worth and then put it down and you haven't remember where you were. Lame Brain is written more like a book, you know, it's, I mean, it's straight on through. <laughs> so there you have it. So there is, there, there lies the fundamental difference. Yeah, absolutely. But Rick, this was great. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Noel. And a special thanks to Rick for joining me today. Go check out his website, rickrobertsmusic.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page Roving My Youth on Facebook. While we're all self-quarantined, be sure to check out past episodes on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, you can find the show on SoundCloud, also on Podbean. And go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. A new episode comes in every Wednesday, sometimes Thursday. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next week.